1972, Deep Throat premiered in Times Square and quickly became one of, if not the most notorious films ever made. It was neither the first nor would it be the last feature-length scripted full-on hardcore porn film to break into the mainstream, but it made quite a stink, eventually going all the way to the Supreme Court in a haze of angry feminists, hundreds of millions of dollars, the mob, and an oddly placed clitoris. But how did we get to a place where normal people watch pornography in movie theaters? And why did it stop just as quickly as it started? Today we go deep, deep throat, into the golden age of porn. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and schools the other. We discuss everything from Satanists to avenging hookers to castration. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Tom. Hey, Slate. How are you? Oh, man, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Well, this is the second episode in season two. Yes, it is. My first episode. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm excited to hear it. Yeah, I've been I've been working on this one for a while. So we've got a lot of good topics coming up. And we also don't know what all of them are. That's true. We do not. Yeah, I feel like last year when we started, we were kind of like, all right, this these are going to be your six. And these are going to be my six. They changed a little bit. But right now we've, we've got some we do. We do know that we are doing bodily fluids. Yes, I'm excited about bodily fluids. Yeah. So I'm doing the first one, which is poop and pee. I'm doing puke and jizz. I don't even know what to say after that. We keep talking about that we're going to do it, and now we're actually starting. Well, people so. have asked about it, too. I know you've got, strangely, a lot of people have been asking you about it. Like, yeah. more than you would think. Would, yeah, kind of like an uncomfortable, yeah. an uncomfortably uh, large number of people yeah, kinda, are kinda, interested in puke gross. and jizz yeah. and bodily fluids. So we're going to cater to those people <laughs> and we're gonna, make those yeah, episodes. Full on. So that'll be our series. We did the nudity series, and we'll do a bodily fluid series this season. Yeah. So that's in a couple of episodes. All right, you want to talk about porn? <laughs> what kind of question is that? <laughs> of course I want to talk about porn. Hell yeah. All right, so I'm talking today about pornography and kind of like the, the time between 1972, and it's really until about 1976, went on to 1980, but it's really only that couple of years, right, okay. when pornography became mainstream. Sure. But of course I need to back up a little bit, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about pornography throughout the film age. Oh, good. So pornography, as we talked about uh, in the past couple episodes, has been around since the beginning of film history. Yep. We spoke a little bit about stag films in episodes four and five, History of Nudity, but I'll hit the basics again. Okay. Stag films were the short film reels that were passed from man to man and were shown on projectors in men's club fraternities and like bachelor parties. Sure. From at least the 20s until around the early 70s. Stag films had no credits because depending on the year or the state or distribution laws, you could be jailed if you like had anything to do with them. Right. 
so they were mostly just short films that showed people, sometimes they were masked people, um, and they were having sex and that was it. There were no plots, no names, it was just sex. Yeah. So stack films started to wane once the nudism films of the 60s, which we talked about with Doris Wishman, oh, yeah. episode 7, mm-hmm. nudism films started and soon sex and nudity became a staple of the adults-only film. We kind of skimmed over the adults-only film. It was something that lived in between the production code and before films were really going full on X-rated. Adults-only films were unrated and showed in theaters in like Times Square and LA and drive-ins across the country. Along with these more mainstream films, many cinemas and adult book shows had peep shows. Oh. Peep shows could be a variety of things, from a live dancing strip show behind a glass window that you put quarters in. Sometimes they were a little bit later live sex shows, or a small projector that played single short films called Loops. You know okay. Loops? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Loops were all the rage back then, um, because they were full on, like, triple X porn, huh. whereas adults-only films were kind of like just nudity or rough trade. Right. Loops never featured names or credits or plots or famous faces, just like the stag films. But they were actually shown at businesses as opposed to stag films, which were just kind of passed from hand to hand. Gotcha. But one other thing about Loops was that they were extremely seedy. Mm -hmm. It wasn't uncommon to see some pretty freaky shit like bestiality, incest, or underage porn. Child pornography actually wasn't made illegal until 1975. So while, you know, people that were doing stuff like that could be arrested, it wasn't like there was a law to be able to prosecute somebody. Wow. At this point, there were also no federal laws that banned pornography. States had obscenity laws, but the feds had nothing on the books that said you could not make or watch a porn movie. Okay. Raids and sting operations were relatively common back then, you know, and going to an adult shop or theater was super risky business, not just because you could get busted, but because it was a seedy place. There were drugs, crime hookers, junkies, and perverts that were all there looking to make a buck. So porn was very taboo back then. Sure. And people, usually theater owners, were arrested and jailed for pornography, but under state laws, not federal laws. Sure. But by the late 60s, things started to change in America. Woodstock, Charles Manson, civil rights. Whenever I talk about the 60s, I always remind myself that the 60s didn't really start until kind of like 63. And it was really almost 1966 before anybody was really realizing how much change was actually affecting it. So like when we talk about the 60s, we're always like, yeah, the decade of the 60s. It wasn't like that. Yeah, it, was it was like kind the of like latter th- half like of the three-ish, four-ish years of the late 60s was the 60s. Right, yeah. So as the studios fell and the production code transitioned into the MPAA, Hollywood was having a really hard time keeping up. Art house and foreign films started to fill that void, especially for teenagers and college students. All of a sudden, there was like a market for audiences to see things on the big screen that they had never seen before. So in between loops and the full-on feature-length porn films were sex documentaries. In the same way that nudism films went to laughable great lengths to have some type of social value, hardcore films had a brief stint of trying to do the same thing. So usually this meant kind of like foreign sex documentaries or sex manual films there was one called Kama Sutra, which was a German documentary that exploited the ancient Hindu text without being considered pornographic. What year is this thing? This was 1969, I think. No, good yeah, year. Appropriate. Yeah. Andy Warhol's art film Fuck, mm-hmm. aka Blue Movie from 1969, is considered to be the first sexually explicit film to be widely released in the United States. There was no real plot. It was just kind of like an afternoon with a young couple, similar to like his movie Sleep and his movie Eat. 
it was more of an art film than a porn, but it certainly paved the path for what porn was about to become. I mean, basically the movie is just an afternoon with them. It's long, they're having conversations, they have actual real sex, and then they continue to have conversations about the Vietnam War and, you know, stuff like that. Hmm. But it's funny because the film was actually shut down and confiscated when it was shown in New York, and the theater owner was fined $250. And this wasn't uncommon at the time. But at this point, the only people that were arrested over pornography were the people that were trans transporting it usually like across state lines or the people showing it theater owners this is important later sure mona the virgin nymph i feel like we talked about this i don't know if i, I don't remember yeah, mona mona's the not ringing nymph. a bell for you all right maybe no. i'm crazy uh well it was a movie from 1970 that was the first actual widely released porn film meaning that it had a kind of plot and starred actual actors and actresses we'll put it on the website you can actually find all of these films that i'm talking about free online although they're mostly on porn sites right right yeah whatever i'm already so fucked when it comes down to if anybody looks through my search history i'm, I'm fucked yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, mine pretty messed up as well. Yeah. So the plot, Mona is about to be married and her horny fiance, Tim, is trying to plow her before they get married. Her mother wants her to be a virgin like she was, you know, before she gets married. Although oral is okay. Oh, good to know. Yeah. This is like her mom's rules. But I should note that in one scene, her mother is looking at a picture of her dead husband and she fingers herself while she's looking at that. So her mother is kind of like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with fingering yourself while looking at a picture of a dead person. But, you know, it's not exactly the type of person I would take advice from. Now, was the picture of him actually being dead? No, being dead? No, no. It was a picture of him. He was he was a handsome man. I think she just was like remembering when mm. she used to have sex with him and was looking at a picture and she was like, I'll okay. finger myself. Because I used an example of someone fingering themselves to a picture of somebody dead mm-hmm. yep. for Toxic Avenger in the last podcast. So I was like, oh, synergy. Uh-huh. No, know? it's kind of different. Okay. So meanwhile, back to Mona, oral sex is so Okay, so sure. she just blows or eats out anyone she meets on the streets. And that's literally how she finds her sex partner. She walks up she walks up to a guy and she was like, Hi, how are you? And he was like, Oh, I'm good. And she was like, Do you want me to like blow you? And he was like, Of course. <laughs> like what who yes. would t- there's Please. no one in the world that would turn that down. Right. Okay. Yeah. Hello. Hi. What are you doing? Just out for a walk. Want me to suck your cock? Well, what? Do you want me to suck your cock? I'm good. Really good. So after yes, she's been around the block a few times. No pun intended. I, no, it's li- literally. And then she goes to the movies to go blow some guy. And then her fiance comes over to her mother's house. Her fiance has sex with her mother. Hmm. So it's okay for Mona. Mona can't have sex before she gets married, but her fiance can with her mother. See, the double the standard. The were just not. That's bullshit yeah. double yeah. standard. Then he finds out that Mona's been blowing all these people and um, and also licking other women's vaginas. Oh. And, hmm. um, and so so he ties her up in the bed and then he makes her have an orgy with all of the people from that she's already uh, had oral sex with. This will teach you. Yeah. And you can have to fuck of, all these people that you blew. The plot's a little, you, a little shaky. Hope you learn your lesson. So Mona was pretty successful in the underground porn circuit and it made enough money for the filmmakers to go on and make some other sexploitation films like Flesh Gordon. Oh. So same filmmakers made uh, Flesh Gordon. Yeah. Uh, the movie Harlot um, and actually the triple X adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. I've seen I want to talk about, I want to hold on, hold off on it for a minute. But what Mona didn't really have was a gimmick. Just a simple plot and some hardcore sex wasn't really enough to bridge the gap between the porn 
porn theater raincoat like masturbators sure um, and the general public but oddly enough it was a gay movie that would do that huh just real quick you have to remember that we're talking about 1971 here sure the vietnam war had been dragging on for 15 years the hippie generation was kind of at its end the beatles had just broken up unemployment was high and nixon was president Hollywood was just starting to catch up with the changes that the 60s had pretty much forced on it. Sure. And controversial films were starting to become more mainstream. The Oscars had already sent a, you know, a pretty clear message when they had Midnight Cowboy as the first X-rated film to be Best Picture. Oh, yeah. And in 1970, I just did a quick search, uh, 1970, 71. These are the types of movies that were kind of coming out. MASH. Beyond hey. the Yeah. MASH. Yeah. MASH. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Five Easy Pieces. Oh, yeah. El Topo. Myra Breckenridge. The French Connection. A Clockwork Orange. Harold and Maude, The Last Picture Show, and Shaft, to name a few. Damn. So it wasn't like Hollywood was like holding back. No. The time was right now for, because all of these kind of previous taboos were now in the mainstream, underground had to produce something in order to be still shocking. Right. So Boys in the Sand in 1971 was the first triple X feature length porn film to be reviewed by Variety, thereby making it at least somewhat mainstream. Yeah. It also included credits, something that up until now was rarely done, as we spoke about with Mona. And then there was kind of a narrative. Mm. Um, I've been listening to this show called The Rialto Report, which I tell you about all the time. Yeah. And the director of uh, of Boys in the Sand, Wakefield Pool, talks about he used to go watch the old loops. And he commented on just like how seedy and disgusting they were and grimy and illegal. And and he thought that that was a shame. You know, he, yeah. he was, especially within, he was bisexual, but especially within gay sex, he was like gay sex can be this beautiful thing but instead everybody just thinks that it's this this grimy bestiality incest you know whatever and he was like that's not true right so he went to cherry grove and fire island and over three weekends um recorded these scenes with an unknown guy rick donovan and the movie was a huge hit women and men alike went to see it critics likened it to the films of kenneth anger and andy warhol and variety Hmm. raved there are no more closets that's not true by the way Um, But it is interesting that the film was received as more of an art film than a pornographic film. And I just kind of said it just goes to show you it's all in the marketing. Yeah. The following year, 1972, the world was introduced to Linda Lovelace in Deep Throat, and nothing would ever be the same. Yeah. say anything that hasn't already been said about it and right if you want to know the whole story the best thing you can do is is watch the documentary inside deep throat it's a great documentary yeah we talked about it a little bit in uh the rise and fall of nc17 that was episode three three sure it's a documentary from 2005 um they do such a good job of kind of chronicling it that i'm not gonna talk too much about all the stuff that they talk about just because if you want to know more you should watch the they're gonna do it better than i am but i'm gonna talk about some things that they didn't talk about in the documentary okay so So here's kind of the story behind how Deep Throat got made. Linda Borman was from the Bronx in New York City, where she was reportedly a good Catholic girl. In her early 20s, she met up with a man named Chuck Trainer. They soon started making porn loops and stags, sometimes together, sometimes Linda with other men. One or two of them still exists. 
I'm going to tell you this, but it's kind of gross. I already know it. I know the one you're talking about. Okay, go ahead. What's the dog fucker? Dog fucker, yeah. Jesus Christ. Have you... I actually watched it. I'm not going to watch dog fucker. Wait, it's... It's available? You can watch it online. It's Jesus. Yeah. No, no, don't watch it because it's it's haunting. Because I'll probably cut this out. Um, (laughs) I thought, I don't know what I thought a bestiality movie looked like. If you think you know what happens in a dog bestiality movie, you're probably wrong. It's horrifying. Right. That's all that needs to be said. The one good thing I will say is that it doesn't look like the dog minded any of the things. The dog seemed very excited to be in the movie. Anyway, that's terrible. Chuck and Linda cross paths at some point with a hairdresser, Gerard Damiano, who was making films on the side. At this point in the 70s, a lot of people in New York that wanted to make films, you know, had their regular day jobs. And then they were making films kind of like on the side, super, super low budget movies. But they all worked within within each other's movies. So it wasn't uncommon for someone to like direct a movie and then the next day, you know, be a gaffer, you know, for somebody else's movies. They were all kind of like intermingled. Yeah, sure. Damiano was working on some kind of loops and stags and, you know, other things on the side when Chuck Trainer introduced him to Linda and her... Um, talent. <laughs> yeah. So Damiano immediately told her that he would write a film vehicle around her. The crew drove down to Miami to film it on a tiny budget and a skeleton crew. The man that they had planned for the lead fizzled out and one of the production assistants stepped in and he was billed as Harry Reams. Gotcha. When they were done, they cut the film, gave Linda the name Linda Lovelace and dropped it off at the World Theater in Times Square. The entire budget was $50,000 and it was completely funded by the mob. Deals were made that, that the mob would keep any of the profits. You know, they paid the filmmakers, obviously not very much, but I mean, it was a tiny, shitty porn movie. Who right. cares, you know? Forgettable porn movie, right. allegedly. <clears throat> But then people started seeing it. And then more and more people started seeing it. It grossed 20 times its budget in its first two months at one theater. But this extended past the raincoat crowd. It was such a spectacle that Roger Ebert and Variety reviewed it, and Screw Magazine called it the best film ever made. (laughs) Martin Scorsese saw it. Barbara Walters saw it. Johnny Carson cracked jokes about it on TV. Brian De Palma, Dr. Ruth, Truman Capote, Jack Nicholson. All of a sudden, the very people that you would never expect to have ever even seen a pornographic film were lining up at the doors to see what America was just starting to talk about. Do you remember what it was about? Who, Deep Throat? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do remember. Do you want me to? Yeah. Okay, okay, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. So it was about a woman who, I guess she couldn't have an orgasm, and right. then she realized, well, the reason she couldn't is because her clitoris was in the back of her throat. Correct. So she went to a doctor because she had had sex before, but she had never really had an orgasm. There you go. He's looking all around. He looks in her throat. It's a comedy. He looks in her throat, finds out that her clitoris is back there. And then he suggests to her that if she learns to deep throat, if she can take a dick all the way in the back of her throat, then that will give her the orgasm because it'll, you know, it'll hit her spot. Hit that that spot, yeah. Uh, Well, there it is, you little bugger. There it is. What? (laughs) Your clitoris, it's deep down in the bottom of your throat. (laughs) Now, now, Miss Lovelace. Listen, having a clitoris deep down in the bottom of your throat is better than having no clitoris at all. It's easy for you to say. Suppose your balls were in your ear. 
So she starts trying it on the doctor himself, which is Harry Reams. And if you were watching the movie in the theater, you were basically looking at Linda Lovelace make a dick disappear. Literally no one had ever seen this before. And now they were seeing it on a 75-foot screen in Times Square sitting next to Barbara Walters. So it was a pretty big shock to see this and and if you ever get a chance we'll put the movie on there if you just watch this scene it is just a dick and linda lovelace being like but then they intercut it with bells ringing fireworks and and all types of kooky shit i I was thinking about that is that the movie that created that trope the like orgasm and then you cut to fireworks and maybe bombs bursting in air I could very well have. I don't have any reference point otherwise. Yeah. So yeah, sure. Well, and this was just New York up, up until this point. Deep Throat was, you could only see it in New York. So the mob, you know, obviously wanting to make more money on this, took Deep Throat on the road and it bought out theaters to screen it. By doing this, they could sell tickets, but not really have any record of it. So they could, you know, rent out a theater, pay them the flat rate. And then yeah. audiences were, were, you know, showing up at the theater, paying and walking in the door there was no ticket there was no ripping there was just walking the door so then the mob just paid no taxes on any of that money smart people across america lined up to see it and i mean they lined up a couple of boomers i talked to said that they had to wait in line three nights in a row to finally see it in Richmond, Virginia. The money was pouring in. And just as it started to wane in popularity, Watergate broke and the source, nicknamed Deep Throat, put the movie's title in the living rooms of every household in America. The term Deep Throat went from being a curious novelty to a place in one of the biggest American political scandals of all time. Yep. So it was kind of one of those things where it was like, it was big and it was a thing, but then all of a sudden that association made it 20 times bigger and is now immortalized in history books yeah so your kids at school are learning all about about deep throat and deep throat or at least the term deep throat yes of course it went against all types of community and state obscenity standards at the time and numerous courts went after it it was shut down and raided all over the country but remember from the loops and stags the only thing the courts could do was take the theater owners or people transporting the film to jail and it usually just ended with a fine But the theater owners were making so much money off of Deep Throat that they let the cases go to court and they would stick up for it. They went to bat for it. And sometimes they won, but usually not. All in all, Deep Throat ended up being banned in 23 states, including New York. And even Nixon said, so long as I am in the White House, there will be no relaxation in the national effort to control and eliminate smut from our national life. But this story just gets crazier as the 70s continue. Yeah, yes, it does. I'm going to move ahead a little bit, but we'll come back to Deep Throat since it played in theaters for many, many more years. But soon after Deep Throat hit the big time, another film was released to a much different type of controversy. A young actress named Marilyn Chambers came to San Francisco in the late 60s after a few modeling gigs and some small roles. She answered an ad for a role in a major motion picture and was cast. Um, She was very hesitant about the movie, so she made some pretty smart demands, but she did end up taking the role. You know what it is? Um, Behind the Green Door? Yep. Quick plot summary about Behind the Green Door. Marilyn Chambers is an upper-class single woman staying in a hotel alone. As she's leaving the hotel, she's kidnapped and taken to a swanky sex club. She's brought out on stage and various sex acts take place, although she's cool with everything. It sounds kind of rapey, but it doesn't come off that way. It's like, you know how like porn now, it like really teeters the line of consent. 
Sure. You know, there's a lot of stuff where I know that they've signed papers here, but it looks like yeah. they make it look like consent is not always readily available. Right. But it, it comes off in this movie as if they've kind of done her a favor. But anyway, as the sex acts are happening, the audience gets all excited and starts orging with each other. <laughs> and at the end, Marilyn walks out through the green door and then she has sex with the film's narrator. It's kind of a sweet ending. It kind of insinuates <laughs> that like she can be into some freaky stuff, but still give her love to one man. You know? But here's the weird part. It's kind of a good movie. If Deep Throat was the poster child for porn sheet comedies, Behind the Green Door is more of like an art house type of porn. Right. There's some pretty cinematic moments and even some taboos on top of the fact that it's a triple X porn movie. Sure. But the first man that Marilyn Chambers has sex with is amateur lightweight boxer Johnny Keys, which became the first mainstream feature length hardcore film to include an interracial sex scene. Really? So yeah, so that was the wow. that was the first time anyone had seen that. Also, one of the audience orgy members is a plus-sized woman, but I mean real plus-sized. Goodness. She's like an obese woman. She masturbates, so that's something that you don't normally see unless you're into that type of thing. Right. And there's some type of nude, gay, or trans either vestite or gender folks in the audience as well, which was very new at the time. Yeah, certainly. Um, And it was also the first porn film to be screened at Cannes, and it was one of the hit films of the festival. And in addition to that, one of the scenes in it is a seven-minute-long multicolored ejaculation scene. Multi, multicolored? It was kind of like a psychedelic seven-minute-long ejaculation scene. I don't remember that. I've seen that movie. I yeah. mean, it was a long time ago. It was but... pretty good. It's a good movie. All right, like, well, no. But here's my favorite part about this whole thing. Okay. So before Marilyn Chambers was in the movie, she had done like a few modeling gigs. Sure. She wanted to be like a legit actress. Right. One of the gigs made her a pretty recognizable face. She was on every box of Ivory Snow Soap Flakes in the country. So she was dubbed the Ivory Soap Girl, and she was holding a baby on the front of the detergent. Hmm. With the tagline, over 99 and 44 one-hundredths pure. Needless to say, family-friendly Procter & Gamble flipped the fuck out when That's they found great. out that, that, is amazing. that their pure girl was the was the ivory soap girl Behind and was door moonlighting door. in an interracial porn, and they recalled every single box in existence. This only drove higher ticket sales as audiences flocked to the theater to see the ivory soap girl in a lesbian orgy. Yeah. It was a huge scandal in the advertising world that led to much stricter background checks of talent in addition to buyouts. So that's kind of like not allowing actors or actresses to be in anything else while they are the face of a specific brand. Right. It's my favorite part of the story. You're, you're very excited about that part. Uh-huh. We'll talk about Marilyn Chambers a bit more in two weeks because she actually managed to bridge the gap between porn and mainstream film. She was in a few more porns and held her own in some non-porn features as well so that's kind of cool yeah she even recorded a surprisingly not terrible disco song called benihana managed to do better than the directors of Behind the Green Door, brothers Jim and Artie Mitchell, who went on to make a few other porn movies in the 70s until Jim drove to Artie's house in 1991 and murdered him. Holy shit. I told you this just keeps getting crazier and crazier. Yes, you did. So not wanting to miss his moment, Gerard Damiano followed up with his second feature, Devil and Miss Jones. Okay. 
wasn't as successful or controversial. I mean, how could it be? Yeah. But it's a considerably better directed and more interesting story. So the story is Justine, played by Georgina Spelvin, mm-hmm. is a lonely spinster that can't get a man, so she slits her wrists in the tub. Oh, yeah. She Have you seen this one? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. She ends up in a holding tank for hell since she's been a good person but committed suicide, which is a sin. She convinces the judge guy to let her go back to Earth for a few days to, like, really do some bad stuff since she's going to have to go to hell anyway. And she does all kinds of weird sex stuff and butt stuff with Harry Reams from Deep Throat. Yeah. There's kind of this weird scene where she lays on a bed, takes various fruit from a bowl, puts it in her vagina, and then eats it. Which I'm pretty sure is what most women do when they're by themselves. With fruit, yes. And then a snake crawls up her body and she mock fillets it, albeit she does not look like she's enjoying it at all. She looks like this is horrifying. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's, I don't, no one wants to do that. Okay. Anyway, after a few days, she's a full-blown sex addict, and when it's (sighs) time to go back to hell, she's locked in a room with an impotent crazy man who's actually played by Gerard Damiano. So you get it, like, hell is where she's a sex fiend, but she can't have sex. Right. It's a decent movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that. It's it's psychedelic and weird, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Devil and Miss Jones actually got some pretty good reviews and was probably the movie that made censors the most nervous out there. All of a sudden, it looked like there was a chance that porn was going mainstream. And like, what would that look like? If big budget films with big name stars getting plowed on the big screen, and then to further complicate issues, a few films were already on that line of obscenity, pornography, art, social commentary that no one could quite put their finger on. Right. In 1972 and 1973 saw the release of Last Tango in Paris oh, and yeah. Pink Flamingos, which both had some pretty graphic sex. And The Last House on the Left and The Exorcist were both very violent. The Exorcist was probably sacrilegious. Sure. Where Deep Throat was a mindless comedy and Green Door was an indie art house flick. Devil and Miss Jones wasn't too far removed from the same mainstream Hollywood films that had rejected graphic sex for so long so that's why people really started to like get nervous yeah in 1973 ralph blumenthal of the new york times wrote an article about this new trend of normals going to see pornographic films in crowded theaters and he called it porno chic yeah so that's where it came from yeah and so and that and and it stuck yeah. He wrote about Linda Lovelace, the celebrities and diplomats and middle-aged couples that were going to Times Square for date night, the women's groups that were protesting, the theaters that were going to court, and the cops that were trying to shut the whole thing down. Right. Porno chic had like officially become a counterculture. It was kind of like in the honeymoon phase, but the honeymoon wasn't was almost over. Sure. So the years of countless state pornography court cases finally got too big to ignore. In 1972, a man who had distributed porn brochures for his dirty bookstore in California got his case to the Supreme Court after losing both his case and his appeal. In Miller versus California, the Supreme Court was a little more lenient in what was considered pornography than a lot of states in the South, but ultimately it maintained that individual states had the right to crack down based on their own pornography laws. This provided a problem and an opportunity for the porn industry. The opportunity was that the Supreme Court didn't outlaw or take responsibility for porn. Therefore, filmmakers were still free to make any type of film they wanted. But the problem was that states that wanted to crack down harder were given the green light and could proceed however they saw fit. That was a huge problem for theater owners that were already within the legal processes of being prosecuted, many were, and also became very problematic for one particular person, Harry Reams. (laughs) So Tennessee had a long history of censorship for religious purposes. In the summer of 1974, the state of Tennessee decided to double down and tried to prosecute the film. 
Harry Reams was arrested by the FBI and indicted on federal charges for being in the movie Deep Throat. You heard that correctly. Like, he was indicted for being in a movie. The charges were a bit more formal. They claimed that by being in the movie, he knew that it would be distributed in different states, therefore making him a conspirator in moving obscene material across state laws. It's fucking kidding me. Bullshit. I mean, it was just crazy bullshit. Oh my God. But he used some of his newfound stardom to pull in some big weights to, like, help him out. Right. So Shirley MacLaine, Stephen Sondheim, and Gregory Peck all spoke out in his favor. Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson agreed to testify on his behalf, but Tennessee wouldn't let them in the courtroom. But here's the thing. He was found guilty. He was facing up to five years in prison for being in a movie. But by the time his appeal came around in 1977, the tides were starting to turn again. The moral right of the Nixon campaign was long gone, and Gerald Ford's term was coming to an end. The country was starting to swing more liberal again, and Harry appealed with the argument that he had filmed the movie before Miller versus California. He was granted a new trial, but by that time, the charges were dropped. Yeah, that's crazy shit, man. Yeah. In the next few years after what I'm calling the Golden Three... Deep Throat, Behind the Green Door, and Devil and Miss Jones. Yeah. The porn industry, aka the mob, churned out big budget porn features with the hopes of breaking the wall between sex and Hollywood. So here's a few of the standouts. Wakefield Pool, the one that did Boys in the Sand, directed Bible, exclamation point, (laughs) which was a sacrilegious heterosexual porn around three stories from the Old Testament featuring Georgina Spelvin from Devil and Miss Jones. Okay. It was kind of a flop. The autobiography of a flea from 1976, which was told from the perspective of a pubic lice in 19th century London. It was also the first pornographic mainstream film directed by a woman. Oh, oh, good for her. The opening of Misty Beethoven in 1977 is widely considered to be the best of the porn chic films, with numerous international filming locations, a strap-on dildo three-way, and a cameo by Casey Donovan from Boys in the Sand. Wow. Captain Lust, which I watched online, is a 1977. <laughs> you know this one? And No, but just to look in your face. It was says filmed... It all. Almost entirely on a ship featuring a full-on pirate-themed soundtrack. It was like a pirate porn movie, but like all of this, it's a musical, and all the songs are like, yo, ho, ho, put it in her butt, you know? Really? Yeah. (laughs) The the classic yo, ho, ho, (laughs) put it in her butt. Rousing tune. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and Debbie Does Dallas in 1970. Debbie Does Dallas, yeah. Yeah, pretty much the last of the genre, but um, it was kind of the introduction of young schoolgirls to porn, <laughs> um, a theme that's still very present in modern day porn. Yeah, apparently so. Not to mention the Forever. early videos of Britney Spears and the rise of cute culture in Japan. Yeah. Also featured Robert Kerman from Cannibal Holocaust, who we talk about all the time. Yes, we do. None of these large-scale films managed to live up to the financial success or mainstream appeal of Deep Throat, Behind the Green Door, and The Devil and Miss Jones. A few mainstream films tried to bridge the gap, like Pasolini's Salo, or 120 Days of Sodom, and In the Realm of Senses, but it just didn't really catch on. No. One more film tried to revive the big-budget porn in 1980. I'm excited about this one. Uh Uh-huh. Penthouse Magazine's box office flop Caligula. Oh. 
God, yes. We talked about Caligula and... Female nudity. In history of female nudity, yeah. right? So I'm just going to mention a few things that we didn't talk about. Remember how I told you that filmmakers and censors were starting to wonder if porn was going to become infused in Hollywood films? Yes. They weren't the only ones. Yeah. So Bob Guccione, founder of Penthouse, had already done some financing of movies and decided that based on the period piece, big budget porn movies he had seen, he could make the Citizen Kane of erotica. Yes. He got Gore Vidal to write a script, Tinto Bass to direct, and stars Malcolm McDowell, Peter O'Toole, and Helen Mirren to join the production. Big names. It was a disaster from (laughs) the start. I mean, he does, Bob Guccione does not know how to make a movie. No. Like, I can already tell you that when it's, when it comes time to make a movie, you need someone that knows how to do it. Bob Guccione does not Did know not how to yeah. make it, no. Gore Vidal's script was abandoned and he separated himself from the project. Tinto Bass eventually wanted his name off of it too. After it went ridiculously over schedule and over budget, Bob Guccione decided to cut it himself. When it wasn't sexy enough, he took some penthouse models and snuck into the studios at night, raided the prop closets, and filmed hardcore sex on the closed sets with a skeleton crew. Then he intercut the porn throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. The final product was an overblown nightmare, which I've probably seen 30 times. Yeah. They spoke of it first in whispers. Then it took the media by storm. Bob Guccione and Penthouse Films International present... Caligula, no treachery could equal his evil. No evil was more treacherous. The emperor who devoured Rome. Cruelty for cruelty, lust for lust. A film that tells the truth as no film ever dared. Caligula, no rumor can match the reality. He didn't want it to get an X rating, so he didn't submit it. But he also didn't want it to play only in porn theaters, which was the only theaters that would take it. So he did the same deep throat trick of buying out theaters and taking it on the road. It did make some money. It probably ended up breaking even in the long run, but the reviews were scathing and it was not Citizen Kane. It wasn't even remotely. No, No, it was. It pretty much proved that even a huge budget, a Gore Vidal script and Helen Mirren couldn't make a decent porn movie. On that note, what did those three main actors think? of the finished product because I know he cut that in without them really knowing about it. Yeah. And none of them were happy, I believe, but I don't know to what extent. No, I don't think so. Although, you know, from from what I understand, you know, from the history of it, it was a constant... Everybody walked onto this movie having something different in their heads. Sure. Obviously, if you go to a movie of where it's a set... I mean, there were there was a lot of sex and nudity in the script as they walked onto set. So it's sure. like they knew that they were getting into this. I, I think the hardcore might have been a little bit further than they thought, but that was always Guccione's plan. Right. He wanted something very erotic. There's a scene in there, because after we did the female nudity, and I watched some of that again when I in that podcast, and number one, the, you could tell when the porn's cut in poorly. I mean, it's different. Oh, yeah. it's, it looks it's different. Mess, it's yeah. shot different. But there's a scene where there's a, or it looks like he tried to cut it to be very similar. To, you know, the big scene you were just talking about in Deep Throat, where she's going down on Harry Reams. Right. And it's quick cuts between clock ringing and fireworks. Uh-huh, right. Well, so in this scene, there's another blowjob scene with, I guess, two women. They're blowing some dude. And, and it's cutting in between marching and stuff that's going mm-hmm. on with Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. But it's cutting really fast. And then it ends with the guy like, 
orgasming, yeah, just like the Harry Reams thing. So it's cut very similar. I don't know if he did that on purpose to have a mirror type scene you right. know, that would call like a reference to that yeah. or not. But I just, it stood out. Yeah. I mean, it was eight years later. Yeah. So I also think that, again, I don't think Bob Guccione knew how to make a movie. No, I think well, he was not... like, I've got this amazing idea, a new, fresh idea, which right. it kind of was. Sure. And then it was like, he was like, now what do I do? Right. I mean, it's expensive. It looks expensive. It the does. sets are huge. Yeah. Clearly, there's a lot of extras. There's a lot of money put in it. But it's it's bad. It's so bad. <laughs> it's too long. It's like, it doesn't really yeah, make any way too sense. Long. It doesn't make sense. Everyone's a, a horrible person. Like, it's, it's just yeah, bad. Yeah. It's bizarre. All the worst instincts of filmmaking of that era is in Caligula. Yeah. You can tell that there was no script. At, one, at some point, they just had rewritten the script so many times that there was no script anymore. Right. Yeah, it was bad. By 1980, large-scale independent pornographic films were no longer making money in theaters. Right. Um, it seemed like porno chic was a short-lived moment in time when seeing a porn in public was dangerous and progressive. The combination of home video and a more liberal America had actually helped porn in the long run, right. but hurt the theater industry. Sure. Now that you could watch Deep Throat in the privacy of your own home, which many, many people did, why yep. would you go to the theater? And once film porn started to lose money, directors switched to video, which was much cheaper. And instead of theater distribution, which was super expensive, they opened their own production companies and sold their films through catalogs and in stores for upwards of $100 per VHS. Right. That's much better returns than a $5 ticket what? sale. And it's such an ultra cheap format yeah. to do it on. Absolutely. You don't have to edit film. No, it's, yeah, money. Hand over fist. In addition, there were two porn cases that already went to the Supreme Court in the late 60s. The first was Redrup versus New York, which stated that porn books, so like paperbacks, were protected under the First Amendment, meaning that it was legal to sell sex material to consenting adults. The second, Stanley versus Georgia, concerned a man who police found some stag films in his home. Yeah. The Supreme Court decided that you could not be prosecuted for possessing pornography in the privacy of your own home. So they basically oh, nice. said VHS porn was okay 15 years before it existed. Nice. And porn was a huge driving factor for home video in general. Some saying it accounted for 50% of the industry in the late 70s. Wouldn't be surprising. In 1978, porn accounted for 70% of sales and rentals. Jeez. Porn was a very outward thing in the early 70s. It had to be. Once home video came out, people could keep porn stashed away and not talk about it, which they did. Well, and some say, and I don't know if you talk about this, some say that was the first fatal error of Blockbuster by refusing to have a porn section in yeah. the back of their, by refusing that whole side of the industry of renting out porn, that Blockbuster lost a lot of potential revenue. Yeah on that for that absolutely in addition to vhs kind of killing the porn industry yeah. women's groups had been protesting porn since deep throat came out feminists like gloria steinem and susan brown miller also went after the film snuff from yeah. our episode on snuff yep they went after the rolling stones and larry flint and it was kind of starting to work and then Reagan in 1980 brought on a much more conservative America, which kind of pushed porn even further back into the closet, literally. Yeah. Do you get my joke? Yeah. No. No, no I didn't get that. Mm -hmm. Okay. There was a brief resurgence of porn in the mid-80s with Tracy Lords, Jenna Jameson, and Jeff Stryker, but yep. it never hit the mainstream again like it did in 1972. No. One of the funny things about this time was how even Gerard Damiano saw the end coming. In 1974, he said, The only thing that's kept hardcore going this long 
along is the FBI and the Nixon administration. Without censorship to encourage people's curiosity, the whole thing would have been over six months ago. Wow. It's interesting that he was kind of the one that knew that he was in a very passing fad. Right. Interesting. So what happened to everyone? First off, none of the porn actors that wanted to be mainstream so bad got their wish. Right. Marilyn Chambers managed to get the closest, making a few somewhat successful films, uh, along with a few more porns. She died in 2009. Georgina Spelvin is still alive and continued to work in show business for years. She never refuted her porn roles and was interviewed in Inside Deep Throat. Hmm. Harry Reams made a few more porn movies and tried to break into the mainstream. He was actually cast as the coach in the movie Grease. Yeah. But he was uh, replaced after his arrest. The filmmakers thought the controversy would hurt ticket sales in the South. Wow. He tumbled into alcohol addiction, but Hugh Hefner bailed him out of jail and helped him get his life together. He got his real estate license and got married. He died happy in 2013. Gerard Damiano made more adult movies and never got killed by the mob. Good. He died in Florida in 2008, but not before he did extensive interviews with the filmmakers of Inside Deep Throat as well. Yeah. His son was recently interviewed in the Rialto Report, which leaves us with Linda Lovelace. Oh, yeah. Linda's 15 minutes of fame pretty much started and ended with Deep Throat. She made a couple more films in the early 70s, including Linda Lovelace for President. But by the 80s, she was out of a job and she joined forces with the feminists that were protesting Deep Throat from the beginning. She said that she was forced to be in in the movies by Chuck Trainer, eventually saying that she was raped at gunpoint while the cameras rolled. No one associated in the films would ever back that up. Although she certainly had bruises in some scenes, and it's pretty accepted that Chuck Trainer was violent towards her. Yeah. What's more likely is that Linda was very susceptible to any other person's lead. Um, she was led into porn and was led into protesting it. She died from injuries. She got in a car accident in 2002. So that pretty much brings us up to date. Although a couple things that I do want to add, it's really only one, um, okay. is the Alice in Wonderland XXX porn remake. Oh, yeah. So I think I remember this as actually happening. My sister rented what she thought was Alice in Wonderland at the Vanity Video store. And when she got it home, it was the Alice in Wonderland porn. Uh. That sounds like a real easy thing to say, but that's what my parents say happened, you know, when she was nine, let's say. Now, Vanity Video did have a porn section. Mm -hmm. Unlike Blockbuster, they did have an extensive porn section Uh in the back. I bought, mo- when they closed, I bought Alice in Wonderland. And the I will say, sometimes you throw those movies into the b- night drop box, mm-hmm. which is usually a little slit in the wind front door. Right. So could it have gotten mixed up? Usually the porn ones, so this is what someone told I me. I thought they were, had um, red, weren't they red? They would be in a different colored case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, this is what someone told me, I wouldn't know. Right. They rewound it, so fuck it, put yeah, it back on the cell. It's pretty shelf, convenient, you know? but anyway. So. We're doing a postscript because what ended up happening was Tom and I had lunch with my parents a couple weeks ago and we asked them about this. Yeah, we did. We had to. Okay. So there's two things. The first thing was we asked them what the whole deal with with the Alice in Wonderland porn was. Yeah. I got most of the story wrong, but in general, it was correct. 
it was in the first days of video rental. So this is in like 1983 or four. That sounds about right. And there were no video stores back then. There was a back room of like a Sears type local business that had decided that they were going to rent out videos. So, you know, they had a couple of racks of them and they had gone through a catalog and just checked things. And then those things were brought over. And then when you went there, you would like look through a list of movies and then they would hand you that movie movie that was right. on there. So they checked the box of Alice in Wonderland, the porn movie, got it in, nobody had rented it, and then my sister checked it out. They gave her the box and then she took it home. And she came up to my parents and said, "Am I supposed to watch a movie that has a big X on it?" And they like ran in there, realized the mistake <laughs> no! or whatever. And yeah. and so that's what happened because yeah. I was just kind of like they couldn't have possibly accidentally given her the wrong one in a video store. No, a well, child, you know. No, no, no. People were at the, I mean, they weren't working at a video store. No. They didn't know what the fuck they were doing. Well, they there's were no video like, stores yet, you know, yeah. and so they, they had, must have had them alphabetically yeah. because they didn't have well, them by right. genre or anything. And they said they took the video back and they, you know, talked to the owner and they were like, oh, here's what Sorry. happened. And he was just like, oh my God, I can't believe that yeah. happened. That's but hilarious. here's the funniest part of the story, which they had never told me. So they waited till my sister went to bed and then they watched it. <laughs> <laughs> which was so I forgot funny about that. They, said that. Yeah, and, they um, had a friend of you know one of our family friends and they the three of them like sat down and all they watched it you know they said that me. they like laughed through it or whatever well you forget that your parents are actually I mean they were our age you know yeah, when or that younger, happened actually, so yeah. it's like sure I mean <laughs> you know we talk about exploding heads and they watch farts and you know whatever porn. and they watch old 70s porn um, the other funny thing that happened was I cut it I've already cut this episode or whatever but I cut the part where we talk about the couple in Richmond, Virginia that stood in line for three days. I asked my parents. They told me it was okay to say it. It was them. <laughs> I feel like I said that before. You but did. You, I cut it out. Oh, <laughs> fucking, fucking amen. But um, yeah, so yeah, they hit Slate's folks sat in, in line yeah, to watch for, Deep Throat. They had to go. I think they got in on the third night, they said, but they couldn't get in the first two nights. Um, but the funny thing was is that they were like, that was the thing. They were like, we were hot shit. Like, that was the thing that, like, young couples did. And they, I mean, that's how I knew about Deep Throat even as a child. My parents told me about it. Not as a child, but as a 15 When you was eight, they told them the story of Deep <laughs> they're Throat. They're like, your sister got to watch the porn version of Alice in Wonderland, so you get to hear all about Deep Throat. Right, that's fair. Um, but anyway, it was off. funny that we were sitting sitting at lunch and then having this discussion with you and then we <laughs> over just, oysters at- and they were like yeah you can sell the story we don't give a shit so. yeah they don't give a shit yeah, they're like we're almost 70 we don't care anymore. we don't care about that yeah. yeah we watch porn anyway end of postscript just kind of wanted to throw that yeah in. that is pretty hilarious so right. you're porn watching parents there you go all right back to the episode yeah but it was funny as did you ever see that Oh, yeah. Yeah, you probably saw it at my house. Um, yeah, that's it was true. a musical version of Alice in Wonderland that was a full blown porn. Yeah, and she would like blow the Mad Hatter in the woods uh-huh, and then, yeah. you know, whatever. It was like H- that. Humpty Dumpty. Wait, Humpty Dumpty? Is that oh, a sure. Thing? Yeah, sure. He like couldn't get a boner. That was part of the story. Sure. Yeah, and then they sounds... sang a song called His Dingling Up, His Dingling Up. We got His Dingling Up. Jesus, really? Really, yeah, really pulled out all the stops on that one. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, I just kind of wanted to. Uh, to add that in there. Huh, interesting. Um, so that's it. That's the golden age of porn. What did I miss? Not much of anything. I would say that, uh, you know, you mentioned that porn in the, the home market and, you know, the this isn't by any means the golden age of porn now, but like one of the arguments was why Blu-ray became the dominant electronic media. You know, and I remember at the time it was HD DVDs. It was either the Blu-ray disc or mm-hmm. the HD DVD. And right. because porn sort of adopted Blu-ray, that was like the 
added piece that made Blu-ray the dominant yeah, sure. digital media. So mm-hmm. it's like porn helped influence that as well as like the home video yep. market. But yeah, um, no, I, it's fascinating. Just that whole time period's fascinating that it was just such a mainstream kind of thing. Yeah, it's just, it's so funny to me that like even, I mean, porn is such a normal part of, uh, of life now just because it's so easy to access. Um, but, you know, at that time, if you wanted to go see, if you wanted to see a dirty movie and wanted to know like what the fuss was all about, you had to like get in your car and go drive to a theater and risk being seen, you know, at the theater, risk being, um, you know, associated with that. And that was part of the danger. That was part of the reason why people went. But, you know, it was couples. Linda Lovelace was sucking a dick on screen. They wanted to see what that looked like. And right. that's fascinating to me. Yeah. So now these days it would be an IMAX 3D. Yeah. And then there you go. <laughs> also, you had to worry about sitting next to some perv in there, too, that's jerking off that, you know. Right. That, I mean, and there was a risk involved in that. Right. I think right. that was, that was the part dice. of it. You yeah. know, it was it's like the same reason why, you know, why you do anything that's got a, that's got a danger factor to it. It's so you can say you did it. Yeah. Matter of fact, that's what they should do on the 50th anniversary, which would be like 2021. Mm-hmm. They should release it on IMAX 3D, like at the yeah. Smithsonian, you mm-hmm. know digital projection can really yes why watch it on a 75 why watch her swallowing a dick on 75 foot screen we can watch it on like a four-story screen yeah. and digital projection mm-hmm. hd dvd with a uh, surround sound yeah also i would say the closest modern equivalent because you mentioned one thing about you know the mainstream actors and full penetration in, in the same movie so i just recently watched nymphomaniac lars mm-hmm. von trier's movie which I wish I had seen it when I did the female nudity because I talked about CGI. Yeah. And so he used CGI here where there's actual people fucking like full penetration, threesome, double penetration where it looks like it's Charlotte Gainsbourg getting DP'd by two black guys when actually her head is just like CGI. Oh, really? On that body. Oh, I figured she just did it. No, that she was CGI'd, just wow. like the other actress where it showed penetration. Yeah. They just CGI'd like either her upper torso or her head uh-huh. onto actual porn actors. Huh. So a whole new realm of that mainstream. Wow. Well, I mean, it's not yeah. mainstream, but yeah, for major actors fucking or right. looking like they're fucking. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, the only one that I can really think of would be well now we have sex tapes too so it's like you can see kim kardashian you know right getting or paris hilton or whatever yeah or even what's his name the irish guy colin farrell there you go yeah that's true yeah so yeah so that's all i got i've it's fascinating i know you wanted to do this topic for a while yeah i'm i obviously super interested in deep throat just wanted to make sure that i wasn't (laughs) just retell that i didn't watch the 2005 documentary and then just retell it to everyone so i really wanted to kind of go into no pun intended um the uh behind the green door and you know all of that and just kind of talk about the the political scene and like and and how it was like such a huge thing for about 15 minutes and it was over I got some references. Uh, I mentioned it twice, but if you haven't listened to the Rialto Report, it's a podcast (laughs) where they have found all of these porn stars and they interview them. It's long form. Sometimes episodes can be like upwards of two hours, um, but it's so fascinating. They ask all these porn stars who are, you know, now older, like about what it was like back then, talking about their childhoods, talking about the movies, talking about all of the people they came in contact with. Super great podcast. I read this book, Dirty Words and Filthy Pictures, Filth in the First Amendment, which was really, really insightful um, and is kind of a history of censorship from the beginning of time up until now. Sure. And then, of course, Inside Deep Throat, the documentary, 2005. Have to see that. Nice. 
So that's it. That's the golden age of porn. Wow, great topic. Glad you did finally got a chance to do it. We'll see you next time. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can view links to some of the movies we talk about today, along with pictures, videos, and additional resources, as well as Bad Movie Monday, our recommendation for the worst of the worst films every Monday night. If you want to keep up with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter where we share out a lot of additional content. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. 